Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And today we are talking about a place almost all of us have heard of and very few of us have ever been to, Dogger Bank or Doggerland, as it has come to be known. To help me explore the past, present and future of this extraordinary part of the North Sea, I'm joined by a professor of law and an author for what I know will be a fascinating trawl of the myths, mystery and reality of that bit on the shipping forecast map between Tyne and Fisher. Tom Appleby is Associate Professor in Property Law at the University of West of England, as well as being a member of the International Water Security Network, the Environmental Law Unit. He's also legal advisor to the conservation charity Blue Marine. Tom, it's great to have you back on the podcast to talk about Dogger Bank and other things. Welcome and thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's, it's wonderful to see to hear good news um, uh, after, after the last one we did, which was a bit more perilous. So, uh, yes. Thank you. Yep. We love to celebrate good conservation news. And my second guest is the acclaimed author and poet, Julia Blackburn. Described as one of the most original writers in Britain, she lives and writes up here in Suffolk on the crumbling coast. And her book, Time Song, is an exploration of the vastness of past time with the loss of Dogland at the centre of the story. It was shortlisted for the 2019 Wainwright Prize. Julia, thank you so much for, for being on Planet Pod and welcome. Thank you. Yes, no, it's lovely to take part in this. Yes. Tom, so we have talked uh, a couple of times about Dogger, about Brexit, about fish, about marine protection. And, and the recent announcement, I suppose, much as it pains me to say this, is po- possibly a post-Brexit success story. Um, but I think it would be really helpful if you don't mind sharing with listeners just what is it that we, we're talking about in relation to Dogger specifically in terms of the legislation and the law? And then perhaps we can talk about the conservation perspective of that. Yeah. Uh, when we were a member of the European Union, we, the, the, um, the, the common fisheries policy allegedly <laughs> trumped environmental law, which meant if you wanted to get anything done, you had to go through the kind of fisheries management bodies. Uh, and where is the Habitats Directive, which is a powerful piece of legislation, uh, very well kind of protected sites from by other in, from impacts by other industries, um, which meant they had to have an environmental impact assessment before they did anything, and, and they could only do it if they could prove no harm or if they were doing it for overriding reasons of public interest. Um, with fishing, it just didn't happen. You know, they didn't do environmental impact assessments. They just carried on doing it, heavily impacting on, on the features that were protected. And, and the Dogger Bank was protected in parts round about various different parts, but around just, just before 2010, basically. Uh, so over 10 years, uh, the British, the Dutch and the Germans protected their bits. The Danes never got round to their bits. An interesting thing is because it straddles multiple jurisdictions. Um, and although it was protected on paper, no management measures were ever put in place to stop mm. fishing. There were lots of discussion and there's a marvellous process where you can just carry on discussing things under the common fisheries policy and basically nothing happens. And when the UK left, that bit of the common fisheries policy fell away and the UK authorities suddenly found them almost like a sort of pass the parcel, pass the bomb almost really, where they unwrapped the thing and they were left with this obligation because you'd thrown away the common fisheries policy and they had a legal duty to enforce it against fishing. And Blue Marine um, 
Oceana and, and other organisations kind of were quite live to this, so started putting extreme amounts of legal pressure on the government to bring in management measures. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a bit of sympathy there because it's quite difficult when you're going to... The, the Dogger Bank is huge. The UK part is something like 12,300 square kilometres. It's big. <laughs> and changing that kind of thing takes time. And it's about, about half the size of Wales, if you think of it that way, the UK bit. Uh, and with one thing or another, we can perhaps go into more detail later, but one thing or another, uh, on June the 13th, measures were brought in that kicked off bottom-toed gears, which is the predominant activity on that huge site. So it's one of the largest single measures of, of marine conservation, which has had an absolutely dramatic effect that certainly Blue Marine's ever been involved in, but certainly would be, be up there this year in terms of one of the most major events that's happened anywhere. So it's, it is a, an extraordinary thing, and the measures have been brought in and, and are starting to, you know, to, to, to ban bottom-toed fishing there, which was, you know, the, the predominant activity that that's been banned since last week. So those are those are trawlers with with basically with nets that 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 just sweep the bottom of the sea and scoop up everything that that gets caught up in those nets, whether it's you know edible or not edible. Yeah. Yes, it's not just nets. They have uh, they have kind of be- heavy beams which are dragged over the surface. So metal oh. metal equipment and and which is dragged over the seabed. So anything the sort of living there gets turned over, and you know you you just don't get a chance for what are called sessile species species that live on 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 the uh, on the seabed to 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 grow. They just get destroyed by these things. And it was you know that pretty much all the site was quite heavily fished, particularly the southern half. Um, so, uh, so it's a you know it's a, it's a significant change from what to, to, from banning that and, and that that was sorry and that is a measure, there's a, a mechanism that's gone on for hundreds of years. <laughs> so this is a you know we are changing the practice that has gone on for a very long time and it's been known to be harmful for a very long time as well. Mm-hmm. I, ironically, though, it's that action, isn't it, of trawling along the bottom there with those nets and those beams, that brought the things to the surface. That alerted people to, or, or you know, within art, not within living memory, but certainly you know, nineteenth, twentieth century, twenty-first century, people to the fact that this was actually a lived and populated place. Because the things that that you talk about in your book, Julian, that sparked your imagination, were some of the things that came up out of the sea that are caught in those nets, isn't it? And those sorts of things. So it's kind of, it, it, we need to stop it to preserve the marine habitat. But if we hadn't hadn't happened, we might never have discovered that this is mythical, wonderful place, you know, which we now call Doggerland, on the Dogger Bank even existed. Yes, it's true. I mean, I think that the real bad fishing system with those big trawler, heavy trawler nets, that was in the 1920s that they really perfected the technique of raking <laughs> the, the sea bottom to the incredible destruction of, of, of the seabed. And the, the, but one of those fishing expeditions in the 1920s, they fished up not only the stuff called moorlog, which is um, like um, sort of grasses and the sort of thick stuff that would make peat, showing that that had once been above the water level and had been proper heavy land. But within one of these lumps of moorlog, they found a worked antler that had been made into a that had been made into a into a weapon, and they were able to see from that that it hadn't been carried across the ocean. It had been made in situ. It had been made there in that place, and that was with the, that was the first intimation that that Dogger Bank had been a land above the water level. And from that, then the explorations and the thoughts about the whole of Doggerland, which had remained as a kind of 
myth and they used to think that, that maybe there'd been a bridge but in fact what there had been clearly as, as people now know it was a landmass um, bigger than, than France and, and Germany together that connected England this little island um, with the rest of Europe which is something which we forgot about now um, but the bit about it that was so fascinating for me when I found out about it was that because it was low-lying land um, it was a place of marsh and and, and lagoon and swamp and small raised bits. It was the most fertile area in the whole European landmass because of its very nature. And that now goes on with it being because of the, the shallow land, I suppose, um, beneath Dogger, of Dogger Bank that still is there. It's a wonderful fish breeding place still now. So so when when was it that that, that that there might have been people shaping antlers into to, to tools? And what, what period are we talking about, Julia? I mean, how far back are we going? It's a huge time and my mind starts bogging because the recent the recent part is the start of the Holocene, where you get the um the, the, the temperature rises um by about 10 degrees at the end of something called the Younger Dryer. So you have this huge ice age that covers. Europe and the whole lot. And then that starts melting and it goes on from, I think it's 17,000 BC until 11,000. When it gets to 11,000, then you've got the balance that is right for life. And then this land starts emerging out of the water and creates a low marshy landmass that is known as, as Doggerland. And by that 11,500, 11, that's when people start moving in. They have done in times past, but that way madness lies because you have the Neanderthals come across and different people come across when it's frozen and you're hunting for, for reindeer or whatever. But that's an earlier incarnation of Doggerland. But that recent thing is, is just the start of the Holocene um, and you have this, this area of extraordinary richness so that, that people come from all around. Um, and it it's becomes the sort of centre of the new age, new life um, for much of Europe. And you write about that beautifully in your book. Would you mind reading a little bit of that? I can do the bit about, I thought I could do the bit about just exactly what it must have yes. been like, that Doggerland when it emerges. 11,500 years ago, and the younger Dryas passed with a dramatic temperature rise of 10 degrees centigrade. And then there was a steady increase of warmth until the weather was not much different to what we have now. And this was the start of the Holocene. Doggerland came into its own, lake and pool and estuary, marsh and swamp and river, island and peninsula, and the great expanses of mudflats and marshes where the reeds move like water. There would have been the same enormity of the sky that I have grown accustomed to, the shifting mountain ranges of clouds, the sudden enveloping darkness of a thunderstorm, creeping mist and soft rain, and the drama of sunset and sunrise. It is hard to imagine the density of life within this landscape, because we have drifted so far away from a world where so many varieties of species can be supported in huge numbers. I have watched starlings thickening the evening sky, Seals gathered in their breeding colonies, an exodus of toads too numerous to count. But every year there is less to see, and my memory tries its best to forget what it has known, for fear of being made too sad by the reality of the loss. We learn to grow accustomed to the absences, because it seems we have no choice. In that other time, along the intricate northern coastline of Doggerland, the glittering expanses of mud and sand are stippled with worm casts 
and made electric by jumping sand fleas and crabs, shrimps and all the other small creatures that are food to the bigger creatures. The air is thick with the sound of birds, curlews laments, wimbrels babblings in seven notes, the triple call of red shank and green shank, the soft twickering of sandalings, the rattle of turnstones. They go on crying into the dusk when the night birds join them and eventually take over. The darkness echoes with what it contains. If this is spring, then the migratory birds have arrived. Barnacle geese and grey-lag geese turn the sky black, their pulsating cries so loud and determined you can't hear yourself shout. Whooper swans and beric swans, necks outstretched, their wing beats and their bugling calls creating two distinct layers of sound. And then all the rest, stork, crane, spoonbill, pelican, a long list whose being here is recorded in the little scatterings of bones that have survived them. Where the shallow sea begins, the silver eel moves in droves as if they are fast currents of water within the water, turns their heads at a stark right angle to their bodies, plummet like falling stars to snatch at them. Gull, cormorant and gannet, shag and guillemot and all the others, a dizzy crowd eating and preening, conversing and competing. If this is spring, fish are spawning in the sea. You see the ripple of bellies as they turn in the sunlight. Further out, and dolphins are leaping in acrobatic arcs, an intimate smile creased on their faces. The white whales, known as beluga, move in droves. Seals loll about in great restless heaps along a sandbank where they can keep their young safe. Some of them are singing. The fat of their bodies ripples under the shining fur. Animals are always near, some among the woods of the higher ground, others close to the sea and the rivers that run into the sea. The stubby-faced shaggy horses and the reindeer have gone, and the big-horned aurochs are diminishing, but bear, deer and wild boar are numerous, alongside fox and wolf, otter and beaver, polecat and weasel, mice and red squirrel, vole and shrew and hedgehog. The hum of mosquitoes, a carcass moves with the maggots inhabiting its flesh. People are at the water's edge, a small group of them among the other living creatures, and like the others, busy with staying alive. They know how to hunt and forage, how to make fires and weapons, canoes, wooden shelters, traps and weirs. They have ceremonies to bury their dead and ceremonies to offer gifts to the mystery of the world that they inhabit. All this is not so long ago when you think of everything that has gone before, but it is a huge stretch of time when you think of everything that must come after. Julia, thank you so much. That was a wonderful piece. And, and Tom, I guess if anything needed to sort of epitomise and, and, and really symbolise why it's so incredibly important that we protect the marine uh, habitat and all of our habitats, that's it really, isn't it? I mean, Julia's reading that. She said it isn't that long ago, really, but we've managed to do such incredible damage in such a short space of time, given given the length of the, the you know, the, the, the age of the planet and our short inhabitation of it. I, th- I think that's true. I think, I think it's wonderful to be able to bring those images, those, that, that history to life in the way that you have, Julia. That's beautiful. I think when it was inundated after it was flooded, um, I, I, it, it became a sub- similar sub- the marine environment with, because it's a shallow sea, there's loads of nutrients, there's plenty of light. There's a huge oyster bed running to the south of it that was almost inexhaustible um, and is now gone. <laughs> um, and and, and that, that, that marine life would have carried on under the surface until 
you know, a thousand years nearly of, of fishing have effectively monocropped it and turned it into a, 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 a sub, submarine equivalent of a kind of over overplowed field. Um, and we don't have to, we don't have to, particularly the sea, we don't have to treat it like that. You know, we, we, we can, we, we, we can restore these things and nature will come back relatively rapidly if you give it a chance. Yeah, exactly. Things prefer to survive if they possibly can. This is the revelation that, that one has, yes. And I think that for me doing this and then other stuff recently, that it's we can't begin to properly imagine the sheer quantity of life that somewhere like a dogger bank could support. You know, that it's it's not just, oh yes, there were lots of fishes. This is thousands upon thousands of species being able to live and have their being and proliferate and have plenty for everyone, plenty for everything. And that's something which we only see in tiny, tiny fragments nowadays. I mean, there were huge, huge herring, uh, herring fleets there. In fact, the whole laws of the sea <laughs> emanate from the battles between the British or the English and the Scots, because <laughs> uh, it predates, you know, the, the Act of Union uh, and, and, and the Dutch, with the Dutch actually winning uh, with the freedom of the seas. And that was all really about who got to exploit this gigantic natural resources four or 500 years ago. Um, and, and even our banking system, these, the industrial fleets were so big that no individual could actually stomach the loss of, of, um, of, of building a ship because they were too expensive, too complicated. So they had to create the banking system in order to build the ships to exploit this massive natural resource. And it's that, that Dutch banking system that after 1689 got incorporated into the city of London, which then, you know, to virally took over the world in a way so so this is the start of this is the start of things the dogger is the start of where it all started to go wrong so it is a remarkable thing that we can oh, look at this and start to turn it around again yeah. i think that the thing that I, I remember reading with the herring industry was that they would fish so much at, at great yarmouth for instance that then they didn't know what to do with the fish so they would just let it rot in heaps and use it as fertilizer on the land that, that, that never that holding back bit of saying, actually, we don't need anymore, just fishing and fishing. And then obviously then you get that vague perplexity of saying there are less this year than there were last year. I thought that, that nature was, was, you know, was endless and bit by bit they destroy it. We did that generation after generation. So mm -hmm. uh, the herring went, so the, feed, the food they predated on the sand eels, <laughs> uh, they, they proliferated, so the Danes, overfished them and started putting them in power stations so they were fish powered power stations i mean yeah yeah so so it, it really did you know the surplus was just burnt um so and that was recently you know that was the 1990s so so it really has been this absolutely profligate use of, of, of national na natural resources with no real sense of, of of how you look after these things or or husband them but isn't that that's absolutely symptomatic isn't it of our of our crumbling relationship with the natural world over the last, you know, 150 years or so, that we seem to think it's okay to plunder, to take and to take and to take and to never hold back, as you've said, Julia, or never just just leave enough, mm. take just what we need and no more. And, and then it's that kind of plundering that's got us to the place we are now in terms of, you know, as you said, you know, overplowed soil, um, you know, monocrops um, in monocultures in, in the ocean, the actual failure that we've had as a, as a species to respect 
the complexity and the and the fragility of the planet and the needs of nature to regenerate and recuperate. There's an interesting thing that in the 19th century, with all the imperial explorations and, and conquerings of the world, the only person who spoke up, for, spoke clearly about what was happening was Joseph Conrad in Heart of Darkness. And he said, don't even think about it being to do with, you know, bringing wisdoms or religion or, or anything else. What it is, we entered countries, and he says, with no more, with no, with exactly the same way as robbers enter a house and break into a safe and steal everything it contains. And that I think is, you know, that's been the sort of push of Western civilization whenever it gets a chance. It's just this, this drive to somehow anything that's not us, our particular sort of human and our particular small pocket, um, we have no impunity about destroying it. And it's, mm. it's, I think it was from when God said to Adam, go out, get rid of the, the, the weeds and the, and the thorns, and get rid of everything else apart from your your cattle and your sheep, and um, and the crops. That as a farming peoples, we've we're actually much you know we're the conquering people because we conquer with farming, mm. and with making more and more and more of everything. That idea of growth is, is from then, from six thousand years ago or something when it started. <laughs> so, so, Julia, what what drew you to 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 write the book to Doggerland? Because it is, I mean, um, you know, I mean. You, your, your book's called Time Song, and it's interspersed with 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 very personal poems and reflections. And and, and why why that? Why 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 this book? Why why Dogger as your inspiration? Well, I suppose it's that living near the coast, which, as you know, is that it falls away all the time. Um, and it must have been about thirty years ago when I found my first bit of mammoth, and thought you know, and tried to sort of find out why a mammoth was not an extraordinary thing to find on just by cove height. And that then, that I've always been interested in, in time, the oddness of linear time. And with this book, the thought that we always move towards eternity in the future, but actually the eternity of time is in the past, in the hugeness of the past. And somehow living by the coast and being able to meet people who knew different bits about the history of Doggerland was to me a way of being able to meditate on time and um, sort of make it, you know, that, that although we're in this terrible, what seems like a kind of finite crisis now, that to get the relativity of the hugeness of past time. So when I get really glum, I think, oh, well, you know, all things will pass, but all things will come back again in a different form because we're just a blip in the vastness of it. And it's extraordinary that along this stretch of coast that you you know, if you go down at a certain depth on the cliff, you can say, oh, that's two million years ago. You go up a bit higher and you can say that's 100,000 years ago. And that the people who know that I got to know, I'd sort of send a photo and they'd get a reply, oh, yes, that's a female walrus, a million years old, it's her hip bone. And that sense of having the tangible image of what is lost was, I suppose, mm -hmm. what, what, and how to do it using in a, in a sort of positive way, just people who knew more than me who would take me to the Seven Estuary or to along the coast or things, and bit by bit accumulating this sense of how to put words to something like these vast layers. Julie, can, can, you, can you tell me about the inundation? Because I, I, I've read various bits and pieces, and, and how did Doggerland go underneath the waves? Well, it went on rising, having, having, but, but wait a minute, it, it is very, very fast. 
because you have the warming of the climate and then that goes on warming and warming and warming. And then there's a bit, I see if I can find it because it's absolutely mad that at a point, um, it is that the, that the water levels are rising something like 10 meters every hundred years or something. I have to check my own book, but it is just simply the phenomena of a warming climate that we have now and that then was accelerating to a huge degree so that, that all the connections between Sweden and England and Denmark and you know all the rest of it was just being submerged. And I think that there's evidence in the in Doggerland in when they with the archaeologists sort of work on it that at times it was obviously incredibly fast. So one imagines that the people living on Dogger Bank that they were suddenly cut off. They couldn't, it was too far to get back to any kind of mainland. And they would have had, like you get now at, at Kofi, they'd have had this phenomena of um, seeing forests becoming dead trees and seeing fresh water becoming salt water, and then suddenly whoosh, a great stretch of something goes. But it is, I'll have to look up the page, but it is very, very fast that the whole thing took place, particularly at the beginning of the, of the that 11,000 to, I hope for some numbers, but it, it gives you a sense of what can come now, which we see that there are factors. I did meet a wonderful professor of past disaster science in, in Denmark with a kind of pictures of waves on his T-shirt. He was a very modern young man. But he said that what nobody properly factors in now, which all, we're beginning to see it, it's not just the gradual right, raising up of the water levels. It's the lifting of weight from the tectonic plates. It's the shifting of all the, the ice you know, the ice melting, which changes the nature of the ground beneath the oceans. And then you have tsunamis and storms. And that you had in the Doggerland time, the real big crisis was 7,000 years ago, when you had something called the, um, the Storega Slide, where a thousand mile stretch of cliff from Denmark out towards, um, is it Iceland, out that way, but it was a thousand miles of cliff that collapsed and created a tsunami that swept over all the islands of Scotland and swept you know, in all different directions. There's evidence of this complete disaster. Um, and that's the, that's the way of the melting world. Huge parallels for our battle with climate change now too, because mm. I mean, one of the things, particularly those of us who live up here on the coast, and, and, and I know you're close to the coast too, Tom, is, is, the rising, is the rising sea level and the constant erosion of the coast and the fact that, you know, lands that would have been dry will soon not be dry. And I know it's been happening along this part of the coast, the east coast, for thousands of years, but it's, it's the pace of change, isn't it? That's, that's what it's going we, faster. It's going faster. That's what we need, faster. That's what we yes. need to, 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 to worry about. Um, Tom, do you think there's some hope for the marine area of Dogger Bank? I mean, we've swept away those oysters, and I know I know Blue Marine put oyster beds back in, but I think they'd struggle to put them there, wouldn't they? Um, but what hope is there that we might get recovery? Um, well, if you don't don't trawl things, uh, the seabed will recover relatively quickly. I mean, we'll see should see recovery in the next ten years. Um, what that is is slightly random actually it's quite interesting when they first did the science on this in, in new zealand in the lean marine reservatory uh, reserve down there the low take zone 
species behave differently when they get to different sizes. <laughs> so you get a kind of almost like fractal geometry. You don't know exactly what's going to happen, but what you do know is it's going to be bigger and more biodiverse if you just leave it alone. And, and so many marine species have got life cycles where they live on the seabed. So not, not, not impacting it in that way is, is bound to be a good thing. Um, and so, yeah, I'm optimistic about that. I think we'll see. Uh, we'll see we'll see some real positives there are a few negatives in that you know wind farms are being built on the dogger bank as well mm. <laughs> the same measures uh, meant to apply then and i was scratching my head as to quite why they didn't have to put in compensatory habitat which i don't think they have to add to which they should have done under the habitat directive is something we'll probably explore um, but fishing is by far and away more harmful than putting up a wind farm um so uh so it is you know, it is very, very good news to have something on that scale. Uh, the other thing is that because we've done the British bit and we're working on the same regulations, effectively, because the law, when, <laughs> just because we've left the EU, much, much of European law will still be on the statute book in 40 years' time. The law's a slow creature. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the, the regulations are the same in our bit of the Dogger Bank as they are in, in, the, in the German and the Dutch bit. And so there's some very active um, Dutch NGOs who are saying, hey, look, you know, the British have done this, Europe. Um, yeah, you better do the same thing. And, 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 and so, so uh, we've got colleagues in, in, in the Netherlands and colleagues in Brussels who are looking very, very carefully at this uh, because there's complaints going on uh, in the European Commission level about how the common fisheries policy is liaised with the Habitats Directive, the, the, the environmental legislation. Um, and uh, so that is up for discussion at the moment but again i think i think it's a very winnable legal position that the ngos are putting forward so on all of that it's kind of very positive mm. so so, so dogga was an, an mpa marine protected area um but you know you yourself described it as a, formerly a paper park are there other areas around our coastline that are at risk in the way that dogga was and will that new legislation protect them yeah, so um, it's as fiddly, this, but basically there's over 70 offshore marine protected areas. Um, and what they did is they basically drew some lines on the chart <laughs> and, and, and protected, and they're not really protected areas, they're areas in which some of the features are protected. So it looks great on the chart, but when you actually look and you see what's protected, it might be a much smaller feature within that overall protection. So, you know, politicians can turn around and say, yeah, look, we've protected 20% of our waters or some random percentage. But actually, no, I mean, from a legal point of view, it's what, what the coverage is, is about the measure that stops the impact. And if you're only protecting a smaller bit of that, that's all that's really protected. Um, so uh, the interesting thing about the dogger was uh, um, that when you look at this, there's quite a lot of science that goes on which dictates the sort of measures you're going to take it. You, you consult scientists, the government scientists and, and, and advisors as to quite the levels of protected to, to, that are needed for each particular feature. And they took, you know, that they did on, on Dogger, they protected the whole feature, which is the whole site. So the whole area has had this bottom tape ban. There are other ones which are the same feature, the H110 Sandbank, I think it's called in the Habitat Directive. Um, uh, there, there are other areas which which should get probably get the same protection from fishing, um, and other areas 
um, which are, you know, where it's going to be more complicated winning any sort of scientific argument. So that's the one thing. Um, the UK government brought in three others, uh, bring, brought in management measures for three others at the same time. Um, they have, uh, they have um, said there's a timetable over the next couple of years to bring in measures to protect the rest. Um, and we'll have to see. <laughs> there may be a bit more legal pressure that's needed to be applied. But also on the other side, you know, I, you know, the government scientists themselves, the Joint Nature Conservation Council, GNCC, um, they they gave very good, robust advice to government, and that's the advice the NGOs used. So um, there are there is good practice inside the UK government as well, but you know you've got to try and extract the politics from the situation as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose overall it's a it's a good news story, and and we need those because you know our relationship with nature is so um you know it's so poor i mean it's, it's, it's some you know studies out recently that said that you know out of the 14 european countries we're 14th in terms of our sense of nature connectedness so as as a nation we've lost that sense of connectivity that julia describes so beautifully in her writing about you know people being close to the land understanding the land that they live on understanding their environments um are there any are you worried at all, Tom? Are you worried that that, that any of these new um, directives will actually not be worth the paper they're written on, and that we, they may be overturned, or there may be intense um, financial pressure or government pressure to 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 not go the whole hog and protect some of these places? Yeah, the two, the two things. There's a positive and negative there. In that, when we left Europe, we also left the habitats rate to. The, the, the regime that controlled it, the Habitats Directive, which was controlled by Brussels EU legislation, uh, that's given the UK the chance to rewrite its own legislation. So there's this horrible thing called the Nature Recovery Green Paper. It never has a, <laughs> never has a piece of legislation been so misnamed, I think, because it, 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 <laughs> what it's going to do is, uh, essentially, from our, our perspective, it's going to take away the duties that sat on government, that they had to bring these measures in and replace them with targets and powers. So they'll aim to do this thing rather than have to do this. They have to bring the measures in. And it's, 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 it's a terrible, terrible piece, a, a, a terrible, dra terribly drafted um, green paper. Now it's got a way to go through parliament and uh, given given where the Conservatives, or that particular branch of the Conservative Party are at the moment, I'm, I'm not sure they'll survive. It'll survive through the legislative process, but it, it, it is it is unquestionably watering down the protections, a proposal by the UK to water down the protections that, that, uh, that we currently have. Um, and actually, I'm not sure how popular it is. I mean, I was at Groundswell yesterday, which is the farmers' conference, where, you know, the, the sort of big landowners are, are saying, well, we recognise we've got an environmental crisis as well because the deterioration of our soil and our water quality, mm. and we want to leave our farms to the next generation. So I think this is a, a question of the government sort of perhaps mm. having an ideology that they want less power, sorry, less duties and more powers. <laughs> but actually that's out of step with where the majority of the people are, even the big commercial farmers, which is fascinating. Mm. It may we may have some balance from from the ground up, as it were, mightn't we? Um, uh, Julia, are you hopeful at all? I mean, you have such a long sense of time span that <laughs> I suppose I don't know that 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 that's the right question. But am I hopeful? 
I don't know. I mean, I think that, well, you know, I, I'm hopeful because there are some swifts in the in the houses around here, but I'm let, not hopeful because there are a quarter of the number that were last year. Mm. I'm hopeful because, as as Tom was saying, things regenerate if you give them a chance. And I just hope that this kind of race can can converge in such a way that, that more chance is given to more living environments. So I'm hopeful. I think one has to be one has to be somewhat zen in the face of the current <laughs> crisis in the world. I can't see, you know, otherwise you get so frightened and so gloomy that you just have to say is as is. And in yeah. your individual way, you do what you can. I mean, I had it, I went to, in Italy, I have a little tiny house in the mountains in Italy. For four years, there were no toads and no frogs. And then this year, that a water tank was black with tadpoles. And then I find myself weeping <laughs> just because of thinking, you know, that's, it's possible. Why they, why they come back, they were ill. Maybe they've come through something and that can happen with the swallows, it can happen with the fish. It'd be wonderful to have those enormous um, cod and haddock and halibut and whatever that used to be. I can remember reading it in medieval texts of, you know, a fish as big as a man. Mm. And that was common. So that, yeah. that it'd be great. But I don't know whether I'm hopeful. I think I'm, I keep the blinkers on and in that way I'm hopeful. <laughs> well, we have to. Don't we? We have to travel, hopefully. Otherwise, we have we have no choice. And 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 um, you know, we know that if we just stop and pause, then 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 nature is a miraculous thing. And some bits will come back, even if we don't get back everything that we that, that we had. Maybe Hugh, we'll be stopped and paused. I mean, maybe, maybe things in our own house will mean that 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 there will be whole pockets that are left alone simply because you know areas will get cut off by by water by by sea level rises or other things will happen to break up our, our sort of stranglehold and that would be very good. <laughs> Suffolk will be an island. Suffolk <laughs> Island, absolutely. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that 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 European and that legislative perspective, but but also for bringing your kind of insight. As to, to what's happening in, in those marine areas. And we're grateful to Blue Marine, which does such fantastic work. So um, without, without whom and conservation charities like it, we would we really would be in, in a dire state. So, so, so thank you. It was great to talk to you again. It was very nice for me to, to hear the conversation. Lovely. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for well, being with yeah. us, Julia. Yeah, I mean, it is. It's finding those bits of hope and pitching your tent on them, I think is my, my yes. sense. <laughs> yes, with a small flag saying hope. hope. Yes. <laughs> and we unfortunately can't pitch on Dogland. Wouldn't, wouldn't that have been wonderful to be able to walk from Suffolk to, to Denmark? I mean, how fabulous would that have been? Yes. So we are connected to Europe. We're there. We're, we're, exactly. We're, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're physically viscerally connected to Europe and hopefully one day we'll see sense and be reconnected yeah. in other ways. So huge thank you to my guests today and uh, as always to, to our executive producer, Jim, and our producer, Beth, and to you for listening to Planet Pod. Um, if you like what you hear, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram and do get in touch. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. We love hearing from you. Um, thanks for listening and goodbye. South of Sierra, Forth, Forties, Fisher, Tyne, Dogger, German Bite, Humber, Thames, Dover.